This is the Liberator Podcast from Giant Worldwide. Welcome to the Liberator Podcast, number 19, with my amazing partner in crime, Steve Cockrum. How are you today, Steve, from, from rainy London? Well, you know, it's actually not raining just this moment, but it has been. But I want to say a congratulations to you, Jeremy, because of our 19th podcast. That's the first time you've ever done the welcome and introduction with one take. So uh, you will now you know, effectively be known as One Take Kubacek from now on. So well done. You know, it's so hard just to, to set it up because you've got to have the right. You know, sometimes I sound like a, a wrestling, um, you know, promoter or boxing promoter, and sometimes it's too low. So, that's right. yeah, thank you for that. That's Steve. great. I appreciate that. It's good. I, yeah. I, I always love our podcast, and it's nice to see that we're we're both fit and healthy and bouncing around. I think last time we were feeling a little bit sorry for ourselves, but apparently our most popular podcast ever came out of most people were interested in what happens when we're stressed and ill so there we go i i don't know what to, to think of that and and uh what's crazy is i mean like lots of momentum going on on the podcast so those of you listening thank you very much some something's happening because it's just been taking off lots of uh lots of downloads and lots of people listening so that's great which for a connector Wait. obviously makes you feel particularly special so that's i love well, that. it, it Hoping it was more than my mom, right? Like both of our moms and our wives listening to it. Like, so you, you never know, you never know. But obviously something's happening and something's helpful. Mm. So we're providing a little bit of banter and a little bit of meat. And uh, I think that's bring, bringing in some value to our friends around the world. So um, anything, anything fun happened this last week? Steve, you've got, you, you got older, by the way. Yeah. I... You're what? 47? Uh, I'm 47 now. How old are you? You're 45, aren't you, for a little bit? Yeah, I'm 45. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been getting older steadily, and I think I'm getting younger now. So, um, yeah, we, I've not travelled anywhere in February. I, I don't know about you, um, but I did two weeks in the US in, in January and realising how much, how much easier it is to do weekends with the family when um, I'm not travelling. So, off to America next week. But... Probably one of the most encouraging things, for those of you who uh, know Jeremy, you'll know he's probably the, the most skilled I've ever met, and as a pioneer, I don't give that away easily, at actually creating environments at dinners where basically we do more than just eat. We, we have everything now from celebrate dinners, celebration dinners, salute dinners, and we Brits kind of struggle, I think, a little bit more with this than the, the Americans, who are naturally positive and um, slightly over the top in most things. But we've been trying to incorporate celebration dinners. So we had one for my birthday, and actually just having people with us share what they were, what they were wanted to celebrate about me, which I know will come as a shock to you and others. But also Izzy and Megan had dinner with us, and it was probably the most humbling of all to hear your children describing um, you and what they valued about you and what you'd brought. So then, of course, the one that is gonna, you're going to love more than anything else is my little Megan, who's 12, um, INTJ, pioneer creative, not famed for their emotional intelligence, shall we say, in early years, went to a 13th birthday party of her friend Lucy at the weekend. And um, they had a murder mystery party. They were all dressed up in like prom dresses and all kinds of things. And apparently, and you get the credit, Jeremy, for this, Megan stood up after dinner while they'd all eaten and said, I'd like to make a speech. 
and basically spoke to celebrate Lucy about what she loved most about her friend. And apparently all of the other 12 guests, all the 12 girls um, celebrating a 13-year-old's birthday, stood up and celebrated Lucy and what they most loved about her. And she was in tears at the end of it to think that her friends, and trust me, 13-year-old girls are not always uh, the most kind to each other. But I thought I'd encourage you that here was transformation and multiplication in action that not only had you persuaded the cynic of me to do celebration dinners, but that my 12-year-old daughter is now also um, doing celebration and realising how powerful that is in the lives of um, people. And I was with Indava this morning, one of our sort of early clients, and, and John, their CEO, is a dear friend and um, another INTP who's been really wrestling with how do we celebrate when it's so alien to that creative pioneer mindset who it's never quite good enough. So all of that stuff about how do we do celebration, how do we encourage, how do we call people up is is being multiplied even in your absence here in Gerald's Cross, so thank you. Well, that's great and so encouraging to hear. But the, the truth is for all of you listening, uh, people become the conversations of those around them. And so our idea at Giant, the idea would be from a leader development uh, organization and what we do with leadership around the world, we, we, we spread liberation, just the idea of a liberating leader. Well, if you think about a liberating leader, they bring high support and high challenge. So to know how to calibrate that, well, why not use your social time? Why not use the table that you have dinner around? Most people miss that opportunity. And so they, they become accidental so people, yeah, what, what's going on with you this week? Yeah, how's your world? How's the sports? Well, those are good things. Third gear is great conversation. But then to go to the next level of offering something that would really impact people. So I can't tell you, uh, those listening, how many clients and friends that we've challenged to the celebration dinner, they tell us stories just like Steve told and the impact that was had. And so why not leverage that time? Why not use the dinner table or the restaurant as an opportunity, it doesn't have to be forever. You can do it for 20 minutes. You can do it for two hours. It's up to you. But you can leverage the time to affirm people because, again, people become the conversation of those around them. And you have no idea of the influence that you could have in that social space. Mm. So, yeah, really, really cool. It's good. One of my, very, my early mentors, a guy called Mike Green, used to say, if you took meals and mountains out of the Bible, you'd have about 50 pages left. That actually, when you look at it, everything significant happened either on a mountaintop or around a meal table. So, you know, that reminded me when you're there that the idea that, that meals, that third gear context is, is so important and learning to be intentional in that space. You, you've really helped me with it. I'm, I'm much more effective at it now than I was before because I think I was probably accidental <laughs> before. Um, maybe that's just a British thing, but I, I challenge... No, you were, you were, protecting, you were protecting the Brits because you were afraid of the cheesiness of this American here and you didn't you're you're just afraid no, you're protecting that's what you're doing I think as long as the celebration dinner finishes within three hours then I'm perfectly happy it's when they go on longer <laughs> than that Jeremy that it's uh, that it is there let's move on before I undo all the good work of affirming you and celebrating your genius round the table well, it's, it's perfect timing because today we're going to talk about pride and humility and <laughs> self-preservation <laughs> And so we're going to talk about the things that, uh, that people protect. And, and so what we want to do is just share with you, the listener, um, just the, the idea. We, because of our business, uh, we, get, we get the chance of meeting with leaders all over the globe and on a, on a daily and weekly basis. And we've got 
our giants um, that are out there, our associates, uh, and they're meeting with clients as well. And so in the number of organizations we work with, there's one uh, simple, um, I don't know, commonality that's, that happens with accidental or mediocre leadership. And that mediocrity, it really comes down to this idea of self-preservation. Whenever we find mediocre leaders, whenever we find cultures that are either stagnant or bad, we tend to find self-preservation right in the middle of it. And self-preservation, just so you understand what it is, it's natural. Um, some self-preservation, it's no one wants to lose their house, no one wants to lose their 401k or their pension or or their family. Like there's, It's natural to protect the things you're afraid of losing. But self-preservation is actually the overprotection of what you're afraid of losing. So when you're overprotecting um, your salary or overprotecting your power or your authority, um, you'll do things and you'll do them in such a way that will actually mitigate or undermine your influence to other people. There'll be a vibe, there'll be a way of uh, body language, or there'll be the tone and tact that you use, or something that you do that actually defends what you're afraid of losing, and you'll end up losing it quicker. So we run into that all the time, and I thought it would be a really, really good conversation uh, to maybe to talk about. So Steve, why don't you tee us up with the three, what are the three questions for self-preservation? I'm going to cough just to prove that I'm not completely recovered. So forgive me. <coughs> there we go. Now you know that I'm on the road to recovery. So self-preservation is a wall and we all have to get through it. So the questions of this is, um, what are you afraid of losing? What are you trying to prove and to whom? And remind me of the third one, Jess, because I've forgotten it just this moment. What am I trying to hide? Well, maybe I was trying to hide that I'd actually forgotten what the third one was. So what are you trying to hide? What are you afraid of losing and what are you trying to prove to whom? And the, the answer would be is all of us have elements in which those things are true. But you'll usually find if a leader is struggling, if a leader is insecure in the way they're leading, if they're kind of almost afraid to be who they are for real, one of those questions will always usually unlock the reason why they have less influence than they would need because it's only secure, confident, humble leaders who are actually able to choose to be real and to give themselves away for others. The moment you're trying to prove something or hide something, you find that you become slightly secretive. It's a competition. You're afraid that if I show my vulnerability, then others are going to take advantage of me. They're going to think I'm weak. I can't have that. And so that pale of place of going, how do I get to a place where I'm actually confident enough to lead in the identity and the gifts and the skills that I bring, know my tendencies, know my weaknesses, but actually be prepared to be real and actually be liberated yourself because you can't lead people where you've not been. And I think that's such a, a fundamental lens for leaders. Your organization will never be healthier than you are. And it'll certainly never be healthier than the culture of your number one team. So I'm dealing with the situation right now, Steve. I'm, I'm serving uh, this one uh, client, and he's got a manager that's over, a general manager that's over the entire operations. And the general manager is so um, afraid of losing uh, authority that he's basically not multiplying at all to anyone. He doesn't want anyone to win. So no ideas are good ideas, unless it's his idea. 
Does that sound familiar? I know we hear that quite often. And so what's taking place with this person is he's elevated himself to be the only one to know how to run this show. And he basically wants dumb employees around him. And that's basically what's happened. So he's he's fired all the good good employees or people who have opportunities, and he's kept people who just are yes men around him. All because he wants to, to run well, the show, and he wants to make sure that he has the power and authority and the salary and all those things. But he has no idea that, that others are talking about him, and others are talking about, well, what do we do? Do we just take him out? Do we just bring someone else in? And so the overprotection and the overmanipulation is actually causing people to think of him and create a plan to take him out in a nuclear fashion, where where if if he had only known how much value he brings to the organization and could actually train other people up, he wouldn't have that issue. So he's creating his own drama and his own fear of losing his job and his authority and his power. And, you know, so so I, I'm... I'm just now starting to walk through to find out how to how to deal with that but have you run into that in the last uh few months have you had any stories of any any one trying to prove themselves or hide or lose i think i mean yes um but i see a common pattern with um what i would call the 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 up-and-coming pioneer voices so the entj the ntp intj if you speak Jungian type so what happens is because they're so determined to prove their competency and they're so ruthlessly competitive and desire to get ahead to advance their career because they, they feel responsibility to use all the gifts and talents they've been given, what often happens is they get frustrated because they feel like they're delivering, this guy was delivering great results for the team. And actually people liked being in his team because they always won but he couldn't work out why people were being promoted and he wasn't who were his peers. And the interesting thing was, it was because when, it, when we actually talked about it, he didn't know how to actually choose to lose. And it, I think it's a recurring pattern I watch, which is to go from the level of being exceptional at leading your team or division to the point where they will raise you a level of leadership, it wasn't about competency anymore. It was about character. And it was about the fact that even though his peers knew he was probably the most talented, they always believed he was for himself more than he was for them. And so therefore, he, he wasn't getting promoted. So the idea we, we worked on, you know, your peers need to know that you're for them as much as you for yourself. So how, what would it look like for you to be able to use your skills, your knowledge, your expertise to serve their teams, even if it meant you didn't always win. Because I said, that's the criteria that they're looking for. It's not your competence anymore. It's, are you prepared to lay down your own personal winning and advancement so that people can perceive you as being secure enough and confident enough to actually know that you add value by serving other people? I mean, it was, I mean, literally the blood drained from his face I've seen it so many times. If you are in that early years, probably in that 28 to 35, and you are pioneer by first voice, you may find that that's one of the biggest barriers. And it's self-preservation. It's like, I have to prove to you I'm competent all the time. I'm afraid of losing 
I'm trying to hide. I don't want you to see that I ever struggle. But that's usually the way in uh, for influence. Sorry, that was a bit long. Now, so now it's great. So for the listener, uh, you know, again, there's there's three things. We all have tendencies, by the way, for self-preservation. It's natural, but based on our wiring or our voice order, it will actually shape and change. So, what are you afraid of losing? What are you trying to hide? And what are you trying to prove? And to whom? So, uh, I'm a connector. So I obviously know the connector world, but the connector world is constantly improving. It's almost um, people pleasing. So the people-pleasing, especially the immature connectors, the people-pleasing is such an annoyance because uh, what, what a connector will do is we'll name drop because we want people to know that we know people and that we've got things, we're making things happen. And so we're afraid of losing, uh, not necessarily respect, but likability, and uh, we're afraid of losing uh, our significance. And so there's certain tendencies that some of us have and if we don't know this about ourselves, then we can drive people nuts because we could constantly be name dropping. And I, I actually did this uh, this last week. I, I name dropped and I knew I was doing it. Uh, and, and I knew that I was doing it to almost prove that I knew a certain person or had authority when I didn't need to, to do it. So I caught myself and at least pulled back. So I, I kind of half name dropped and then I kind of shifted but that's where, that's where pride and humility comes in, is the pride is trying to be somebody that we were never intended to be. So if you, made a, if you made a list, for instance, and you put the list and you said, I am good at dot, dot, dot. I am not good at dot, dot, dot. I, I will never be dot, dot, dot. So for, I know for me and my personality types, uh, for the ENFP or those that are, that are more the connector creative, we want to do everything. Well, I'm I'm never I'm never going to produce a movie. So, that's okay. I'm never going to be president of the United States. That's okay. It took me until the last 7 years to figure that out that I wasn't going to be. But there's going to be certain things that I'm never going to be and never going to do, but there's other things that I have the potential to to do. So, to get past that proving ground of trying to prove myself to every single person or people please myself with everyone around me, it wears people out and primarily me. And so that's a level of secure confidence that we can get into when we begin to be humble instead yeah. of prideful. And I think the important thing to understand, and you highlighted it brilliantly there, Jez, was that our tendencies don't change. And we talk about you know, the idea that the good leaders, their tendencies define their actions, and on the whole it works. But the great leaders have learned how to make an intentional choice between the tendency and the action. So you, your tendencies won't change, so you will always have a tendency when you feel a bit insecure to name drop or to make something sound greater than it actually is. Well, that will never change, but you can be intentional like you are and you can choose what your action is. And for me, that's the, that's the thing that people have to understand, that this is not a one and done. You don't get to go on a course and go, well, I'm now, I'm now, I'm now done. I don't have to worry about this anymore. All my tendencies have been changed. I'm now going to be a perfect leader. It's literally every day, hour by hour, week by week, month by month, year by year, the consistency of the intentionality. And that's why so few people finish and finish as well as they started because it takes, I would say, not just the intentionality from you, but it really takes people who will walk with you 
share the journey with you and speak into your life. I mean, the thing I love about you and our team is we actually constantly fight for each other's highest possible goods. When we see those tendencies or those patterns creeping back in, we call it. We call, and as you said before, we call each other up, not call each other out, because there's a huge difference between calling out because you're trying to score points off somebody and calling them up because you actually want the very best for them. So that's a great analogy for connectors. Who do you want to do next? Well, so if you think of guardians, just for a second, uh, guardians, I found that most guardians are afraid of losing um, authority or respect because they've spent so much time uh, learning the details or let's say I'm, I'm over um, operations. So they usually, because they're so detail-oriented, they know more than most people. So they're guarding the, what's already working, but they're also very, very uh, talented. They know the ins and outs of every... So if, if someone goes around them... So let's say what happens to most guardians is uh, if they're immature or maybe a little bit insecure, they'll try to prove how much they know, so they'll sound like a know-it-all. So they'll come out with all of the things that they know about a certain topic. So if you go to John, hey, John, can you help me with such and such? I sure can. Did you know that I, and then they start talking about all of the additional things that they know. Well, what's going to happen is I'm going to avoid them in the future because they're not brief. They're going to, they're going to embellish, or they're going to talk too long about all of the ins and outs of the things I don't need to know. I just simply needed to know one answer. But if they're afraid of, of losing their authority, then they'll overdo it. So there'll be know-it-alls and people run away from know-it-alls. So their, their desire to prove themselves and how much competency they know actually drives people away from wanting to gain that influence or that knowledge from that person. Yeah, no, couldn't. I think that that's so good that most guardians want to prove their competency and they want to prove they can be trusted to carry the ball under pressure and the trouble is by they're so determined to do that they often forget that in the end people relate to people not just as task related achievers they actually want to relate to them as people so the more they try and prove how competent they are in their work the more they're as you said the more afraid of losing that authority actually they push people away because not everybody finds it easy to be around someone who only ever talks about work or is only ever focused on that place. So the wall of self-preservation is when a guardian comes down and says, do you know, I am competent, but I don't have to be defined purely through what I do. I'm actually happy to be defined through the relationships I build and the consistency that I bring. So all those natural strengths. Once a guardian is actually secure and they don't have that self-preservation, they make incredible friends because no one is more consistent, no one is more loyal, no one is more dependable. And in some senses, no one remembers not just the details of work, but they remember the details of their friends' lives and they enjoy being in that mix. So it's a huge difference. You can always tell whenever we meet people, how, how big is that wall? How big is that self-preservation? Because it's almost like there is so much more people can bring when that wall comes down. So that's great. Yeah, and if you take if you move on to nurturers, to think for a second, uh, a nurturer, um, I don't think they have much they're trying to hide. Usually, I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the issue, um, and or or proving themselves. 
So it's almost like they're protecting uh, people so much. What would you say would be for the for the nurturer? What would self-preservation look like from your perspective? I think it's um, a lack of understanding how other people truly see them. So in a sense, they almost punish themselves because they judge themselves so harshly in their motives, in their actions, that they always, without realizing it, they become a dominator to themselves. So they, they kind of, they never own the competency they actually have. And they're always in this oscillation, which is really quite a bind. Because if they try and tell you how good they are, they then feel they're being arrogant and proud. And when they're not, when they're being, you know, that humility, they're often being falsely humble because they're terrified you're going to think of them as more competent than they actually prove to be. So if you think of that kind of balance between appropriate confidence and humility, I would say the nurturer probably does it as well as anybody, but tortures themselves about their inability to live on that kind of knife edge more than anyone else. So to find a nurturer who's actually secure, confident, humble, and not trying to prove themselves, not trying to make everyone understand, you know, um, being on edge that somehow someone's going to find them out, that they're not as competent, they're not as sorted as they want to be. That's usually where self-preservation kicks in because they're never at peace. It's never enough and there's always something else they can be doing. So that's usually the, the telltale sign for me. Who is on the... Amy Norton, one of our partners, is the most liberated nurturer I think I've ever known because she's actually... Uh, it's, it's fine to be just her and she doesn't compare herself all the time against some of the other voices. But it's very hard for them to do and they certainly need help. Right? They don't tend to do it themselves. Well, I, I find that the creative in the same way, and that's our last voice we'll talk about today, but the creative actually is very similar to what you just said, is they actually, uh, they beat themselves up so much. They're mm -hmm. afraid of losing uh, really their ideas or the, the construct, or they, they want to find someone who they can value, mm -hmm. but they get so worn out and tired because uh, no one understands them or mm -hmm. they can, they're always in their head. So oftentimes what happens is they, they hide behind their veneer of, of their job or whatever because they keep their best ideas in. Mm. So unless they have someone around them that really, really values them and pulls it out and clarifies, mm. uh, then oftentimes they'll clam up or keep, keep things internally and they'll preserve their best ideas only for, the, for their, either the right moment or the right people group. How would you, how would you add to that for the creative I think um, I'd, I always, in some ways, we have to differentiate between the creative thinker and the creative feeler, because I think they are distinct in how they are. So for the creative thinker, it's usually the, they're, they're almost trying to prove the genius of their idea and their intellectual pedigree, because they love complex problem solving that no one else can do and dreaming and visioning a future that doesn't exist yet. So in some senses, the insecurity is always trying to prove their worth through that process um, and often pushing people away in that process. For the feeler, for the creative feeler, it's a very good question. I mean, I think there is such an idealistic desire to fulfill their potential in life. And by doing that, by helping others fulfill their potential, the hardest thing is for them often to truly believe 
that they're actually doing enough or that they fulfilled all of the possibilities that are in them. So they're their own harshest critics and they're another group that tend to dominate themselves because they see what this perfect thing they should be to be liberating others, to be you know, bringing all this creativity into the world to help. But they live with a disappointment that what they see in themselves and in their ideas is never as perfect in the external world as it was on the inside. So they often beat themselves up in this kind of almost trying to prove to themselves that everything is as good as they thought it would be. It's quite wearing apparently. I don't have that issue, but you know, I've, I've seen it in others. And I know you think we did pioneers earlier, but I, I think kind of that was a specific example. I'd be interested to know from you, um, what, what do you think is the self-preservation uh, using those questions for pioneers? Yeah, well, I'd, interesting. What are pioneers trying to prove? Sometimes I, I see them proving themselves to other pioneers, but not to any other really voices. Yeah. <laughs> or they, they're proving themselves to their dad or someone who's not living. Mm. So it's really interesting when I when I deal with some pioneers. Like, what's your motivation? Why do you, why are you doing what you're doing? Oftentimes, it's someone in their college, someone in their life that's almost they're almost competing. Mm. So they're proving that they can beat someone or beat or it, they they've done better than so and so. Mm. So um, I don't I don't see them hiding much until unless they're under extreme stress, mm. um, and and they've they've gotten to such a level and they're just uh, manipulating to hide. But most, most pioneers um, to me are competing with other people uh, mm -hmm. that are not around them. It's almost a figment of their, their imagination. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I often say that a lot of the pioneers are a bit like um, male lions. And there's, there's usually sort of a hierarchy in the pride and, and most pioneers want to know where they fit in the hierarchy so, so they can compete to climb. So that once you know your place, they're fine, but you'll usually find there aren't too many pioneers in the same place together unless there's one very, very dominant male uh, sort of pioneer who actually is apprenticing and investing in the younger lions because what the younger line is thinking, I'm going to take everything you've got and one day I'm going to be in charge. So it's this sense of advancement of how do I get to be the best I can be to fulfill all of what they perceive to be their potential. So I, th I think you're right. I think the fear of losing, the fear of looking incompetent and the fear of failure in a task is usually the, the pioneer Achilles heel. I mean, there's the old Teddy Roosevelt quote that we talk about where for the pioneer, they usually say, I'd rather fail while daring greatly than be counted among those cold, timid souls that have known neither victory nor defeat. So it's almost like for a pioneer, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna, die, if I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna die trying to do something incredible because for me, that's more honorable than withdrawal. So competition, I think, is the, the defining preservation. Of course, it makes them really hard to be around. So real maturity, you can always tell who's come through the wall of self-preservation because they take delight in others' achievements more than their own. It's interesting how many well, people... And that only, it only comes through brokenness usually, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you think through, that's the hard part is that for, for most of us, we have to get through some brokenness, some period of time. I know that's happened to Steve and I. Mm. And 
and it's almost a badge of honor after that because you've basically gone through so much uh, of really breaking is leads to humility uh, yeah. most of the time. And for the listener, what we've done is is we've simply added we have uh, thirty seven tools or so in our toolkit that we use for for companies and organizations that hire us to help them with culture and and growing their their leaders. What we've done is we've taken self preservation, one of our tools, and we've mashed it up with five voices. And uh, we like to do these mashups to have conversations around them because they're fascinating. What you can find out about them. And a lot, oftentimes we don't choreograph them. We just talk out loud together like we are today uh, and see what comes out. But this, uh, the self-preservation. To, you mean you've not got a script, Jeremy? I'm following a very, very <laughs> carefully crafted script at my end. <laughs> no, I do not have a script. Uh, but we, what we've done is we've taken the five voices and then for self-preservation, uh, we've written about this. I've written about this in Making Your Leadership Come Alive, which was a bestseller in 2011. And it goes through influence and it goes through self-preservation and liberation. And it really talks about how do you break through a wall of self-preservation. So if it's helpful, great. Um, but overall, our, our job is to help you, the listener, become more of a liberator. Someone who's free to, to liberate other people who learn how to support and challenge themselves and those that they lead so that they fight for the highest possible good. Well, you can't give what you don't possess. So we have to uh, get very voraciously looking internally at our own self-preservation and doing something about it. So uh, we just believe in, in we have to know ourselves to lead ourselves. So that means that often uh, we look in a mirror and just to see what it's like to be on, on our other side of ourselves and we self-lead. And when we do that, others want to follow us. So thanks for, for coming along on the journey uh, for those who are listening. Steve, any last thoughts you want to leave people? Um, this is really important stuff. I think particularly for anyone who's an eager beaver, keeny, who's listening to podcasts because they want to get better and they want to improve. It's often counterintuitive to people to realize that actually um, your, sometimes your desire to prove and the desire to kind of make sure everyone knows how good you are actually undermines influence. And it's, I think for me, it's been such an important part of the process to go, you know you know you've reached a place when you don't actually, you're at peace. You don't have to prove yourself to people. They, they, you're just a confident there. And the real one is you start to give it away. You start to invest your life in the lives of those around you. You start to basically become generous with your time, with your talents and resources. Because it's not about proving anything anymore. And they're the type of leaders that everyone wants to follow. Everyone wants to be in a team with someone who's prepared to give themselves away and to invest. So self-preservation is a killer for influence. And Jeremy's book's fantastic. I, I, you know, I really enjoy reading it even back then. Um, and it's just continued to get richer. The more you know yourself, the more you can lead yourself and you can lead others as well. So that's my final thought for today. To those listening, we wish you the best. We're so for you guys. Thank you for being a part of the Liberator Podcast. Thanks for letting us um, really speak into your world. We hope it's helpful. And we encourage you to, whether it's a celebration dinner, whether it's answering the questions of self-preservation or knowing yourself uh, uh, to lead yourself through the five voices, we just encourage you to, to dive in uh, for really for the benefit of everyone around you. Steve, as always, we appreciate it. I love uh, doing a podcast and hanging with you, and uh, we'll be seeing each other very soon with all of our speaking together. So 
Cheers, my friend. Take bye-bye, care. Bye-bye, Chase. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. That concludes today's episode of the Liberator Podcast from Giant Worldwide. You can find out more information about us online at giantworldwide.com.